So may we turn to our Bibles, please, and you'll see that uh, the church Bible page is there in front of you on the PowerPoint, and uh, it's Hebrews uh, 11. We're going to take our run in from uh, chapter 10 and just read one verse in chapter 11. So we'll begin at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. And then to have a a run into that one great verse, which is the focal point of our sermon tonight as we're continuing in the book of Hebrews. This is a remarkable account of the the cauldron of suffering and, and, and travail that the early church experienced. And we are here tonight and... It may well be in the history of the church there has never been so much uh, persecution and and hardship um, throughout the world among God's people. So if this seems theoretical to us, let's remember the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. So verse 32, Hebrews 10. Remember those earlier days After you had received the light, when you stood your ground in in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So, or as some translations have it, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe And are saved now. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. And certain of what we do not see. And that is a great verse that makes the connection with uh, the difficulties and challenges that are often a characteristic of faith in Jesus Christ. So we're looking at this uh, part of Hebrews now. um, And... uh, the, the heading is how to cure the shrinks. Now, that, the heading of the sermon might be a way of saying, don't touch psychiatrists with a barge pole, but it doesn't mean that. Um, if you can make the connection in verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. This idea of not shrinking back, holding back, but pressing on. So what about these periods in our lives when we do shrink back, when there isn't progress? Well, 
that's uh, where the heading comes from, verse 39. And just think for a moment if you've had this experience. If not, in all probability, well, for sure, at some point you will. And it's this. That you visit the doctor's surgery. And uh, you haven't been feeling very well. And he says to you, I'm going to have to run some tests. Now, I've had this experience. That invariably, almost inevitably, means taking blood from you. Which I think is a cruel thing to do. Hannah used to take blood. They used to call her the vampire. <laughs> and for little boys, she used to give them a sticker saying, I was a good boy in the doctors. And I asked for one of those, but they wouldn't give me one. Because I don't think I was a good boy. That was about five years ago. Uh, this whole idea of, of recognizing how frail we are, whether young or old, um, tests. And then we wait to see what the results are. And depending on those results, we may have to have medication, perhaps we have to have surgery, or indeed, as someone recently was told, go home and put your house in order. Even when these things are for our good and we recognize it's for our good, they are still challenging and difficult. Like the doctor, God periodically, in his providence, calls us into his surgery. And it may be through force of circumstances outside of our control, like these things that are happening to these early believers, where they're saying, where is God in all of this? When I became a Christian and put my faith in him, I really thought I was on the, the highway to heaven. But now it, all, it seems to me as if it's the dark valleys and the harsh experiences. And that's the whole point of this letter. People have become discouraged and disillusioned. When I came to faith, I didn't think these things would happen to me. In fact, for some of them, coming to faith has given them more problems, more difficulties, not less. So God periodically uses experiences to remind us, to challenge us, and to say to us, just like the doctor, look, I want to put you through some tests. I want to try your faith. I want to test its authenticity. And through the, these experiences, I want you to grow and be stronger so that you can be a means of blessing to other people as well. Some of these tests, just turn over about two pages and you come to the book of James. And there you have it. James seems to put this on record once and for all. And it is a reminder to us when we think of the difficult experiences that are unique to the Christian. Just think for a moment as you, as you look at James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. That if there are unique blessings for the believer... We shouldn't be altogether surprised that there are unique sufferings that are true for the believer. So, let's put it on record once and for all. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the implication, well, you ought to know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now look at the chain that begins to take place. The tests. God calls you in and he makes a battery of tests just like the doctor. And he says, what is this for? 
to develop perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Do you see the process? So as you come back to uh, James uh, chapter 10 then, let's try to see where we're going here. Here is the point. If you, if you, if you lose concentration, you'll be thinking about Wimbledon or whatever, and, you, um, and you've had a good dinner, and you hit that time where you're just feeling comfortable, um, this is the point of the sermon. Don't shrink back. Stretch forward. Don't shrink back. Stretch forward. I hope Andrew Murray will uh, emerge next year as a stronger, more determined uh, tennis player so that one day he will win at Wimbledon. And perhaps he will do that because that he's seen through his disappointments that there are big challenges ahead. And that is true spiritually for us. The Apostle Paul often used these illustrations from the sporting arena. You don't have a gold medal by just turning up. You deny yourself. You go without legitimate things for a greater goal. And this is the whole point here. Don't shrink back. Stretch forward. You see, at the beginning, you see where we read verse 32? In those early days, after you received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. That's how you began. Faith is challenged. You see that in verse 32. And at the end of that process, look at verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back. Thank God, praise God. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have received uh, their reward, who are saved. Well, that's good. That's the beginning. Okay? That's the ending. It's the classic thing. It's the muddle in the middle. It's, it's the thing that we used to learn when we were, were at college was this, that often if you, I'm preaching a sermon, you say you have a good introduction, you need a, you need a definite conclusion, but avoid the classic muddle in the middle when people are planning their next uh, business tomorrow and uh, what's for tea and that sort of thing. And we can be like that in our Christian life. We began well, it's our desire to end well, but somehow in the middle we have got a bit lost. Faith is challenged, verse 32. Faith is rewarded, verse 39. But it is in the middle that the real test, the unseen tests, what is true religion, finally stripped of all its embellishments, it is this, that when we are alone with God. And it's the test, the real test, the stress points that comes in these situations that our faith is strengthened. So with that introduction, three stress points that I want to give to you from verse 33 and 34. So we concentrate uh, on on this part as we lead up to Hebrews 11 verse 1. The first stress point then is this. And it's so relevant to us today and it's this. It's cynicism. Whatever we might think about the impropriety of members of parliament and expenses and so on, one of the things about the media and public opinion is this. There is an awful, awful lot of cynicism out there. They're all the same. They've all got their hands in the till. 
It's not true. And yet that's how, that's, that's society. One church leader falls morally and the whole church is written off. That's, that's the atmosphere in, in which we have to live. And so you see in verse 33, sometimes you are publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those so treated. If you saw the central news um, on last, this Friday past, they, uh, the Thames Valley Police did a mock-up of somebody breaking into a car in the public square in Bicester. And the, it was filmed and they showed this. The, the man who was doing it was a policeman in plain clothes. And he, he, he stole something from the car. The alarm is going. He runs through the, 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 the shopping precinct. And nobody, but nobody, did or said or reacted in any shape. And then they came round, the reporters, and interviewed people. Said, did, you, did you see that? Did you hear that alarm going? And one person said, what's the point of calling the police? They don't do anything anyway. And another lady who was interviewed says, well, the alarms are going off all the time. They're just a nuisance. There's almost a sense that with, with cynicism creates indifference. Why bother? These people are publicly exposed. The object of ridicule through verbal abuse and mistreatment. And it's not nice. Especially if they don't deserve it. Some MPs have said, I've had enough. Whatever the election comes, I'm not going to put my name forward. Maybe they're doing it simply because you can only take so much cynicism. How do we feel like that as a Christian? Secondly, in verse 33, suffering indirectly. Okay, if that's the direct, this is the indirect. In other words, your fellow believer, he or she, is going through a tough time. What do you do? Do you do like that uh, mock-up of a break-in? Say, well, you know, it's not, it's not my car. It's not my problem. But look at this. You stood side by side with those who were so treated. You might say to yourself, you know, they're having a tough time now. It might be me next week. I hope that they will stand by me as I will stand by them. There are some Christians who are so disillusioned with their fellow believers that they've given up on church. They are the unchurched believer. That in their time of need, there was no one to stand with them. The question, of course, we should ask is, did you ever stand next to anybody? Suffering indirectly, choosing to get involved, to stand by our fellow believer. This is something quite unique about apostolic Christianity that isn't merely just be going to church. Turn back to uh, Philippians 4, just to see, um, see, see this as Paul almost gives a word of testimony about this church uh, in Philippi as they stood by him in his imprisonment. It's quite remarkable, really. It gives us a window into what the church should be like. It's thanks for their gifts. Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. At last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned but had no opportunity to show it. Now you did and you didn't miss out. I am not saying this because I'm in need for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance. 
I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. But he isn't independent like some Christians whose lives are falling apart. You say, how are you? I'm fine. It, it really is quite appalling, and I find it exceedingly irritating. So, verse 14, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, no one, no, no, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And look, what, how do you see this giving? They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, unpleasing to Paul, of course. And a little P.S. in this mutuality of sharing and giving. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? And, and more and more, not that we, we want to be nosy, and, and, but we want to be genuinely helpful with each other. Sharing indirectly. Standing side by side. And the last, if you like, stress point is this. Verse 34. Struggling. Struggling. You sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And these sort of struggles, sometimes when you come face to face with the injustice and the unfairness of life, in a way, no unbeliever can, can respond quite like this. Unless you believe that you can put your trials and difficulties into a bigger context than this life, then you are going to collapse like a pack of cards. You see, it's one thing to tolerate one's troubles, to be stoical. That's fair enough. But it is very different to do so joyfully saying, you know, I can put this in the light of eternity. I don't understand now, but I will one day. And I am part of a great company of people. You remember the way our Lord put it as he is summing up the Beatitudes, a beautiful attitude. And, and in, in Matthew 5 and, and verse 11, blessed are you. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. In other words, these trials I'm having, if I can somehow have a glimpse of heaven, I can be the better for it. I can be the better for it. Do you see that? It's the last of these great, beautiful attitudes. And part of that struggling is seen beyond the immediate do we believe that? You know, the loss of freedom, that's the context here. The loss of property. 
the, the, the kudos of being one with our peers at school and so on. Or perhaps because of our Christian faith, our promotion has passed us by. It happens so much. Can we, can we honestly see that in the light of heaven and accept it and be the better for it? Or actually are we, with these stress points, no different to the unbeliever? So in view of these tests, what is the challenge? The challenge is this, press on. It's put negatively, but it's got a positive application. See verse 3, don't throw away your confidence. I hope in verse 36 you could just highlight that. You need to persevere. You need to persevere. It's one of the things I'm sure Murray will appreciate, that if he's going to seriously think he's a hope of winning at Wimbledon, he's going to have to persevere. Overcome temperament and trials for the greater good. Somehow we've developed a sort of a laid-back Christianity. And everything is easy going. When did we last put ourselves out for, 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 for Jesus Christ? Or get involved with a struggling believer? Or just say to them, I'll, I'll hang in with you here. I'll pray with you until you see this through. You need to persevere. And that, pure and simple, comes through faith. It comes through faith. The opposite, then, of persevering faith is to shrink back. And he makes that connection. You see, verse 36 again, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. We are not of those, verse 39, of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are redeemed. Are redeemed. The opposite of persevering faith is to shrink back. To shrink back. Faith. Living faith in Jesus Christ is the opposite is the opposite to shrink back. And that is the ultimate test of our faith. It's a legitimate one. Just like the tests that we may need for health or for other things or for our exams. Faith is the alternative to shrinking back. And so we have four truths about faith as we come to Hebrews 11 and verse 1. This Classic uh, verse. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Just make a comment on this as we, as we conclude and prepare to come around the Lord's table. I say it for a third time. Faith is the alternative to shrinking back. We are not of those who shrink back. We are those who press on and persevere and are redeemed and saved. So what we have, and I hope that we'll come back to Hebrews 11, perhaps uh, in the new year, and it's this. Just to make a comment on here, Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 3 is, it gives a definition of faith, and particularly verse 1. And then for the rest of the book, what you have is a demonstration of faith. 
And, and you, you know, if you, if you were this week to just read through this and look at, at, at these great men and women of faith who were ordinary just like you and I, and yet the one thing that made them stand out was this, who by faith did things. And it wasn't that they had a great education or they were so clever or they had all these things. It was faith that made them stand out. And faith is surely the hallmark of trust in Jesus Christ, that our faith would grow and mature and develop. So the definition is all that we comment on tonight. The rest of the book is a mighty demonstration of how God used the most unusual people and made them very remarkable. And the one thing that was true for all of the men and women is this faith, living faith in Jesus Christ. So then, with these four things we conclude. Faith involves confidence, confidence, and certainty. That's not arrogance, it's not being clever, it's a humble confidence. You see this in Hebrews 11 verse 7. Now faith is being sure. I'm sure. It's, it's, it's the root word of assurance. And the term literally means, it literally means this, to stand under. When you think of these mighty, mighty buildings, uh, when Neil and I just two weeks ago were, were in London, in the, in the square mile, just by St. Helens, you have that mighty gherkin. It's a massive building. What is it standing under? Great, secure foundation. And that's the point of our faith. It's the unseen. Literally, that's what it means. Standing under. If you have a dodgy foundation, you have a house built on cards. And it's this confidence, this, this proof, if you like, inner confidence that God is with us, even though our outward circumstances may be difficult and trying. Secondly, faith always relates to the future. Yes, we thank God for the past, but we can't live there. There are some people, as we think of uh, John Calvin, who, who, who prefer to read his institutions and live in the past, the great days of the church and its glory. But what about now? And what about the future? We are surely future tense Christians. Always relating to the future. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see, of what we hope for. Thirdly, faith has its object in the unseen. And I know this is a bit tricky, in the unseen. When we get a grasp of eternity, we develop that ability to, to envision what God is going to do. And fourthly and lastly, faith is absolutely basic and fundamental to pleasing God. We tend to think in faith in terms of actions and doing great things. You, as we come to the Lord's table now, we need just as much faith. So that when we take this bread and we drink of this cup, we are again affirming our confidence in Jesus Christ. And we come in faith. That pleases him. And when we do so, we're saying, you know, I couldn't save myself. I couldn't pick myself up. I couldn't forgive my sins. He did. He did it. I come with living faith and I take the bread, I drink of the cup.
It pleases God. Why do we say that? Well, look at verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Earnestly seek him. I just want to close by reading uh, from a, a book that I bought ooh, almost 40 years ago. Uh, it's by Tozer, and it's the concluding uh, chapter. And um, he's, he's speaking here about um, uh, we can't afford to wait. And then he says uh, in the conclusion that Christians are rather strange people. And he says this. Try, this, is, I, this is the last quote, and we're finishing. He says this. A Christian is a rather odd person anyway. He feels... Supreme love for one whom he has never seen. Talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see. Don't forget, faith is seeing the unseen. Expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another. Empties himself in order to be full. Admits he is wrong so that he can be declared right. Goes down in order to get up is strongest when he is weakest, is richest when he is poorest, is happiest when he feels worse. He dies so that he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so that he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes knowledge. It is an odd thing, but it's a very glorious thing. And it is faith that is crucial to that. Not that we are nice people or clever or anything else. It is a living faith in a living God who has declared himself in Jesus Christ.